All right, let's go ahead and get started. Everybody okay tonight? Let's go ahead and stand as we open up in prayer. Thank the Lord for the rain and the cooler temperatures. And uh, like I said, this is part of that two weeks or so that we enjoy being in Texas. Uh, it'll change pretty soon. But uh, thank you for being with us online tonight. We're glad that you've tuned in. Uh, we're going to open up in prayer. How many have a need tonight? You'll just signify by lifting your hand. If you're online tonight, if you'll comment, we want to pray with you as well. Uh, let's pray for, let, let's do pray. We had a couple of people that had some procedures done, surgery today and some other things going on. Uh, want to lift them up in prayer. Also, let's pray for the for our schools. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been hearing some of the rumor uh, and stories of what's been going on at the high school. Um, just, uh, uh, again, you got to be very careful because a lot of a lot of things get twisted online and, and uh made out to be things that it really wasn't, but it, it, it's, it's a very tense situation, and we just need to pray for our school, our, our, uh, our teachers, faculty, and the students in particular, um, and let's pray for parents. You know, today, parenting is a very, you know, I look back over here, <laughs> I see that wonderful baby over there, and I'm thinking parenting is a difficult, it's always been a difficult assignment, but can you imagine throwing in where we are in our culture today? Uh, trying to raise children. It is, it is a very challenging. So let's pray for parents uh, as well, that God can give them wisdom that are beyond years. Father, tonight we're so thankful to be able to come together and study your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. Lord, the rain that has nourished the ground. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for all the change that's in the air. Uh, Lord, just the Christmas of the air. And and Lord, we're just, uh, we, we thank you for these gentle reminders that uh, Lord, that you are concerned about us, that you are attentive to us. And I pray as we open up tonight, Lord, we do so with a heart of thanksgiving as we uh, move in next week to the month of November. It is our Thanksgiving month. We, Lord, we do want to take time, and we always want to be grateful and thankful for the wonderful things that you do for us, Lord. We don't deserve it, but you do it because you love us. And I pray, Father, tonight for the hands that went up in the building. I pray for those that are online tonight that have tuned in, that have needs I pray, Father, that no matter what it is, I pray for those that uh, had procedures done today. I pray, God, that you would restore, renew, re, uh, just rejuvenate their bodies, bring health and healing to them, Lord. I pray for those that are facing procedures that you would do the same thing, Lord, that you would take charge. I pray, God, that you would just uh, meet the physical needs. Uh, Lord, I pray for the emotional needs. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would uh, meet every financial need and every relationship. Uh, relational need, Lord, we just thank you. And then, Father, we stand in agreement. We pray for our schools. Lord, we pray for our teachers and our all the faculty and the, the students, uh, Lord, and parents. Uh, Lord, these are very difficult and perilous days is what Paul said. And I just pray that, uh, Lord, that you would just uh, turn the hearts of men to each other, first to you and then to each other, Lord. The issues of our day are not they're not legislative and they're not rule issues, they're heart issues. And Lord, only you can soften the heart. So we pray that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened to your truth, uh, Lord, and that you make a difference. Father, keep each one safe. And be with us now with all the ministries on campus. Be with us in our study. Open our hearts and let us hear what the Spirit says to us. We commit it now to you in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen, amen. God bless you. you may be seated tonight. Brother Johnny, if you wouldn't mind that door there for me, please. Uh, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going we're gonna to get into a new series uh, tonight, uh, Portraits of Christ. And uh, 
uh, just just update, and I'm just doing it because it's easier to do it this way. I did see the doctor today. I'm going to have to have surgery on the 9th, um, and so we'll get that finally uh, taken care of, and and hopefully it will be, you know, it took 56 years for this one to happen, and, and maybe the next 56 years <laughs> before the next one. Uh, I'll be okay with that. So uh, anyway, uh, Mark chapter 10 uh, like I said, we're going to start a brand new series tonight, Portraits of Christ, and tonight's teaching is a self-reliant man. Uh, Mark 10, beginning verse number 17, we know this story well. It says, now as he was going out, of, out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered, notice this, and he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, notice this word here, loved him. That's very important, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. May the Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. You know, as we move into the Christmas season, um, you know, again, and I'm not jumping it, I know we still have Thanksgiving and, and all of that, but this is the holiday season. As we move in, uh, I think sometimes it's nice to focus on Christology or the, stu- or the, the study of Christ. Uh, you know, when, when people get saved or maybe some new believer calls me and says, Pastor, where do I need to go in the Bible? One of the places I always tell them is start with the book of John. John is known as the gospel of belief. Uh, and you, I say, read John and then, and then go to Matthew and Mark and Luke and read John again because it gives you pictures of Christ. Again, uh, that's what we're going to be doing over the next, uh, the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at portraits of Christ. And so I want to look at specific snapshots of, Jesus, of his life, the life of Jesus, and how he handled the various encounters that he had on a daily basis. How many have, a, how many have daily encounters with people? Again, you think about it, whether it's, you know, and, and again, daily encounters doesn't have to be something supernatural. I mean, it could be something as, as uh, innocent as, a, uh, you, know, you know, a cashier or a waitress or, or something like that, you know, the mailman or the delivery person. I mean, again, there, there are counters, encounters that we have uh, every day, uh, divine encounters. I preached a sermon years ago, uh, divine encounters through the daily routines of life. And, and oftentimes, if we walk with that awareness, we find that God puts people in our pathway that we can either glean from or we can inspire them. And so we're going to look at some of the snapshots of his life and see how he daily interacted. You know, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, uh, he said that God predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Uh, so when you start talking about words like Christian, the word Christian means Christ-like, Christ-like. So Christ-likeness is a term that we hear often in the church world, but what does that look like? I mean, you know, we can talk about Christ-likeness and, and, and we can talk about the, the, the theology behind it and we can talk about 
things like that. But what is it? How does that look? What is it? I call it flesh out. How does that flesh out in our day to day lives? Again, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12 that becoming more like Christ involves two things. One is surrender. I'll never become like Christ if I don't surrender my life to him. In fact, in chapter 12, he said we are to present our bodies as a, what? A living sacrifice. Again, that's the surrender. I'm to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. And then he says, and the second part of that is not only does it involve surrender, it involves transformation. He said we're to be transformed by what? By the renewing of our minds. Okay, don't let the world, what did he say? I love that message paraphrase. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Anybody ever made a, uh, watch either play, Play-Doh, okay? You know, they have those little molds that you, uh, you know, if you're a baker, like cookies for, you know, you stuff those things down in there and you pull it off and you got that little, uh, that's kind of the idea that Paul has in mind. Don't let the world push you down and squeeze you to fit its idea of what you should be. Paul said to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So, so to start out, if I'm going to live a Christ-like life, it involves surrender of who I am. Remember, Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the three steps there. Deny yourself. That means to say no. Listen, our flesh screams for, for satiation or, 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 or satisfaction. But he said, you got to learn to say no to self and yes to God. Take up your cross. That means rejection and mockery and death. The old man dies, and then follow him. That's it. Uh, so we have to surrender, and then we have to have that transformation. You know, and, and here's the thing. Some people, and some people are very good at learning through reading books. I'm not one of those. I, I, I read. Uh, I, I, I used to read a lot more than I do now. Now it just seems like life is such a phonetic pace, it's hard to really read. But I, some people can read a book. And my, my dad, for instance, my dad was, uh, he dropped out of high school probably in the ninth grade. I don't remember exactly, eighth or ninth grade. But there's one thing my dad did. My dad was probably one of the smartest men I'd ever met in my life. Uh, my dad read. He read, every, I mean, anything he could get his hand on, my dad read it. He would sit there. Every time you would see him, he had a book in his hand, whether it's, uh, you know, magazines. He was a big, uh, big into popular mechanics, popular science. Um, had just a wide variety of interests, and he just he was just so smart. It's because he read. He was a well-read individual. Um, you know, some people can learn. You know, they can learn through reading uh, and lessons that are taught. But then there are a lot of people that I think they call it tactile learning, uh, which basically means hands-on. You know, they're they're hands-on. They, you know, it's kind of like the old disciple method. You know, uh, you watch me, uh, you watch me, I do. We do, I watch you do, you know, and that's kind of the idea. Um, so, so this is what this series is going to do, okay? So we're actually going to look at some snapshots of the life of Jesus and see how he lived and how he interacted with people. Max Licato wrote a book uh, entitled Just Like Jesus, and in that book he asked the question, and I quote, he said, what if for 24 hours Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, lives in your house, assumes your schedule. What if for one day Jesus lives your life with his heart? That's an interesting thought, right? 
You know, we used to sing that song in kids' church, be careful little feet where you go. Careful little eyes what you see. Careful little ears what you hear, you know, and all those things. Again, what if? What if Jesus woke up in our place, lived our day, our daily routines with his heart? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how, how, would, how would life change? How would, your, how would your routines change? Again, I, I, I think most people would say, you know what, there would be some adjustments uh, if, if, if Jesus were to wake up and do my schedule. But, I mean, how, how would your morning be? I mean, would it be different than right now? I mean, the Bible says in Mark chapter 1 that uh, talks about Jesus and his daily routine. One of the things that Mark noted in chapter 1 was that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, what did Jesus do? He got up to pray. He got up, left the house, went to a solitary place where he prayed. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, mid, I'm a mid kind of guy. You know, I don't like early, and I don't like late. I'm just kind of that in-between guy. You know, I want to I wanna see the sun peeking up when I wake up, and, uh, you know, I, I don't burn the midnight oil. It's kind of funny because uh, how many has ever gone to watch night services for New Year's? You know, the, you, know you, you sit there for, you know, you get there about 10 o'clock, you eat, you pray, you sing, you eat some more, you pray, you, you wait for that clock to strike, and then you get out of there and go home. We've never done one here in my almost 30 years of ministry. Now, I don't mind people doing them. I don't do them because at 10 o'clock, there's something in my DNA that my blinds start shutting, <laughs> and I want to find the, the bed. Uh, I, I am a I am a party pooper. I just, in fact, when we lived in Germany, uh, Sheila and I had, and uh, we lived in uh, after we moved out of our apartment, we moved on base housing, and we had the old. anybody remember the old console TVs? Looked like a piece of furniture, weighed about like a couch. We had a console TV that we shipped to Germany where we lived, and of course over there we had to use a converter to be able to even to power the thing and. And uh, they showed the Super Bowl live, except the thing was it was 1 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference. And we had the largest TV in the, in the, in the housing there. And so I invited some guys over to watch the Super Bowl. About 10 o'clock, or, or well, after we'd started watching the game, uh, you know, I'm already past my bedtime. And I finally looked at them and said, guys, I, I'm going to bed. I'm sorry. I, I just got to go to bed. I said, just turn the TV off and shut the door on your way out. And uh, two of my neighbors stayed there <laughs> while, while I went off the bed because I just I couldn't do it. Uh, you know. So how would your how would your routine change? I mean, if Jesus were were to live your daily routine, how would it change? Jesus began his day early while it was dark, praying. What else would happen? I mean, think about this. How would you speak to your family? Would you be on time for work? I, I, my pet peeve is tardiness, tardiness at work. I just, you know, I guess it got ingrained in me. If I'm, if I'm 50, I'll tell you how punctual I am. We had, a, we had a, one of our ministers' deals going on one time years ago, and uh, they were so accustomed to me being the first one there. Even though I drove the farthest, I was the first one there because I just, there's just something in my head that I can't be late. Well, we got stuck in traffic, and I, I, I didn't plan very well. I, you know, traffic's kind of hard to plan for. They're calling me. I mean, they get there, and I'm not there, and they're calling me. Are you okay? Are you coming? I'm like, yeah, I'm just stuck in traffic. 
you know, but would you be late for work? How would you do your job? Would you, would you sl- uh, slough off? Would you, uh, you know, would you, would you be diligent? What would, you, what would your attitude be like? What would your attitude look How would you spend your money? Again, imagine, <laughs> imagine how that would be, again, to, how it would be to live one full day in complete perfection. No mistakes, no blunders, no regrets. Now, we understand that will never happen this side of heaven, right? To be completely perfect. But the Bible does teach us that we can become Christ-like. It tells us. In fact, Paul said to the Philippians that we are commanded to be like Christ. So how does that work? Well, let's look at some of these snapshots. That's why I'm doing this series because I think sometimes, we listen, we interact with people all the time. Sometimes it's a good interaction. Sometimes we do really well and we represent the kingdom well. But then there's some people that just get on your, your last nerve, right? I mean, they just know what buttons to push. Well, you know what? I'm sure that there are people, I don't think Jesus ever lost, he, he never lost his cool. That's not what I'm implying. But there were people that were testing. How did he do that? How did he respond? Well, that's what we want to do. So tonight we have an interesting story. Our text is a very familiar story to most of us. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Now, this story is, is written about in the other Gospels. In fact, Mark, uh, Matthew identifies the man as young. Luke identifies him as a ruler, and then Mark just simply mentions that he was a wealthy man. So here's the thing. Normally when people, when preachers or teachers use this, uh, this story to, to teach or to preach, they're always doing it from the perspective of the man and how the man responded uh, to Jesus. Tonight I want to flip that. And tonight I want us to look at how Jesus interacted with this man who came up seeking eternal life. Now, there are three things, there are three principles, I think, in this story that really can help us out. Uh, and, and so I'll begin by reading it once again, verses 17 and 18. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, said, good teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, that's kind of puzzling right off the bat. Why would, why would he say that? I mean, why would Jesus say that? Is he saying that he's not good? No, that's not what he's saying. He's revealing a really a, a, a wonderful principle for Christian living, being Christ-like, and that's the first thing I want to talk about. Number one, Jesus directed glory to God. You know, isn't it amazing how much can be done if we're not concerned about who gets the credit? You know, again, you can apply that in every area of life, whether it be your, your church life, your, your family life, your job employment life. If we're not concerned about who gets the credit and we do our diligence as unto the Lord, it's amazing what can be done. So this story, again, one of the things that we notice about Jesus and how, again, if we're going to be Christ-like, the first thing he did was he directed the glory to God. Now, Jesus, again, now we understand the, the incarnation. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's the, as the Nicene Creed says, he is the very God of very God, okay? He has existed for all eternity. The Bible says he is the creator of all things, and in him all things are held together, and his name is above every other name in heaven and earth. In fact, the Bible says one day, what? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet, here's the thing. When he was on this earth, Jesus did not seek out praise. 
He didn't. He did not seek out praise, and he didn't seek to draw attention to himself. He wasn't, he, he wasn't, the, the, he wasn't the one that had to be, well, he was because of what he did, okay? But the, he didn't pursue that. He didn't seek that out. Several times when Jesus healed somebody, you remember in the gospel, several times the people came up and he healed them. And remember what he said? He said, don't tell anybody about this. Can you imagine somebody today that was used by God to bring healing to somebody? Can you imagine telling them, don't tell anybody? I promise you it'd be, <laughs> it'd be quite the opposite. We'd, write it, we'd issue a press release, write a book about it, hire an agent to negotiate film rights. I mean, that, that's what we would be doing, right? Jesus never sought attention for himself. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand this lack of self-promotion of Jesus. But when he was here, he directed all the glory to God. Again, that's Christ-likeness. Every, all glory goes to God. Jesus didn't want attention directed towards his earthly ministry. He wanted the attention directed to his Father in heaven. In fact, John chapter 12, he made it very clear. He said, I don't speak of, on my own authority. The Father who sent me gave me his own instructions as to what I should say. John 12, 49, New Living Translation. Another time in John 7, 16, he said this. He said, I'm not teaching my own ideas, but those of God who sent me. Those of God who, it's not me, it's his. It's the Father's. Again, one time he said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's, that's it. So this wealth, wealthy man approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher. And, and again, in that culture, that was a, an ingratiating uh, uh, term of respect. It was, uh, you know, and, and probably he expected Jesus to respond in kind according to the culture, and it would be something along the line of most honored and good man. That's kind of what he was expecting. He comes up, good teacher. He was expecting Jesus to reciprocate and say most honored and good man. It was the custom. Instead, <laughs> here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, hey, let's get past all this superficial flattery, and let's focus on what really matters. Isn't that amazing how Jesus always, you know, I mean, every story you read about him, I mean, the woman at the well, you know, he got past all of her, uh, her attempts to distract him or to change the topic or subject. He always brought it back to what really matters, okay? He wasn't saying that he isn't, again, he wasn't saying he isn't good and that he isn't God. He was objecting to being addressed in such a way by someone who was completely unaware of his divine nature. Had no idea. I also think that Jesus was trying to avoid something like, uh, anybody know what I mean when I say like church camp mentality? You know, here, here's what I mean by that. You know, this wealthy man, if you read the text, says that he was running to Jesus. So, so somebody running to someone else. It's like, it's like my grandbabies, my granddaughters. I, <laughs> when they see me, you know what they do? They come running. Paul, Paul. Audrey's getting a little, it breaks my heart. She's getting a little older, and, and she still loves her pawpaw, and she'll hug me, but she don't come running much as she used to. But little Emmy, man, she'll make a beeline, and she's running. You know why she's doing that? She's excited. She's excited that she gets to see pawpaw. And, of course, pawpaw is flipping over in his heart, too, that I get to see my grandbabies. You know, it's something else. So, th so he's running, so there's some emotion to that. There's some emotion to it. The Bible says when he got up there, not only was he running to Jesus, but he fell to his knees. 
Again, talk about the emotion. Listen, when I say the church camp mentality, you know, I've gone to church camp. If you've gone to church camp, you understand what I'm talking about. You get, you get plucked out of your normal day-to-day routine, and you're placed in church camp where all you have every day centers around worship and, and camaraderie and the koinonia and all that stuff, and, and you get a spiritual high. And then you have to leave camp and come back home. And the dog, dog is still there and he's still barking and still chewing your socks. The baby's still crying. Your baby brother's still crying or your baby sister, you know. I, the normal routine. And, and I think what, what Jesus was saying, listen, throughout his ministry, Jesus, I, I'm sure there were so many people that got caught up in the emotion of the moment of what was happening. You know, he was often the talk of the town. In fact, Jesus couldn't even sneak into town without the grapevine burning up. You know, they would, you know, I think of Paul Revere riding through town, the British are coming. I think there were people during Jesus' day running through town saying, hey, he's here, he's here, he's here. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, come, come. He couldn't even go in town. The Bible says there were times he went to get away just to be alone, just to have some R&R, and he looks up and he sees the masses coming, and he was moved by compassion, and he gets up and he starts serving. There was a lot of emotion. I mean, can you imagine, you know, being part of that uh, 5,000? You know, you're getting out there, and all of a sudden your stomach starts growling a little bit, and here his leaders, his disciples are saying, hey, send them away. Let them go find food. And Jesus is like, no, you give them something to eat. And can you imagine how excited that must have been to be there to get the very first McFish sandwich ever? I mean, it had to be something else. There was a lot of excitement. I mean, people thronged to be around the emotions of Jesus because they never knew. He might stop a funeral procession and raise up a dead, a dead person. He might spit on the ground and play in the mud and put it on the blind man's eyes. You never know. There was a lot of emotion to it. Remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that final week, the emotion of that day? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got caught up in the thrill of the moment. They were laying their cloaks down and the palm branches. And, and, and we know it was an emotional moment because just a few days later, Jesus was arrested and most of those people were nowhere to be found. And when the choice was given, <laughs> give us Barabbas. I think that's what, why John wrote this about his early ministry in chapter 2. He said, because of, here's what he said, and this is the New Living Translation. Here's what John writes. Because of the miraculous signs he did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Did you get that? He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what they were really like. They were, they were just looking for the hat being pulled out of the miracle hat, uh, the rabbit being pulled out of the miracle hat. They were looking for the, the fish sandwiches. That's what they were looking for. Jesus' statement to the wealthy man was intended to get the man thinking beyond the hoopla of the emotions. Okay? Sometimes that hoopla surrounded the miraculous ministry of Jesus, and he wanted him to focus on what really mattered, and as what really mattered was his relationship with God. That was what is important. 
Again, I think that in, in, in modern Christendom in our churches today, we've got to be careful. Listen, I, I would, I, I, my prayer is God rend the heavens and come down and restore the miraculous. You know, sometimes I pray like Gideon prayed, <laughs> where be all the miracles? You ever prayed that before? I have. Where be all the miracles? You know, but if all I'm seeking is a miracle, am I not any, I'm not any different than this guy. We got so many people that just chase after, and, and you think about it, they fly over here to see this evangelist because they want to get what they got, and then they fly over here to see this one because they want to get what he's got. Then they go over here to where she's at and want to get what she's got, and, and and it's just a vicious cycle. And they're always doing that because they're seeking the wrong thing. Jesus asked this, said this because he wanted the man to focus on what really mattered, and that was his relationship with God. Again. Today we've got people, again, we've got people that start coming to church because they, they want to get their lives straightened out. They hear good things about us. So we've got good music and friendly people and the best preacher anybody's ever heard. I was just seeing if you're laughing. I'm just kidding. I'm not that vain. <laughs> I'm still working. You know, and they think, you know, so they hear. And they think, you know, I need to make some improvement in my life. i tell you what, I think I'll get back into church. Listen, my almost 30 years here, I can tell you I've heard that statement many, many times. Listen, getting back to church is not a bad thing, by the way. It's a good thing. I highly recommend it. <laughs> and if you're sitting out there, you could be sitting here too. I'd look forward to seeing you do. But listen, it's our job to remind people that that's not all there is to it. There's a whole lot more to it. It's easy to get swept away in the emotion of what's going on. One of my favorite scriptures is... Uh, and the psalmist writes, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, he's ordained praise. And I take that to mean that whatever we do, we should do it like we did the first time. The first time, remember the first time you walked in. You know, the first time you walked into the church and you, you know, again, whatever was different about it. You, the, the music and we have, I believe we have wonderful worship and people connecting with God and the, the presence of the Lord. That's what I hear probably more than just about anything is how how tangible the presence of the Lord feels in this place. And, and you remember that, and there was something that drew you. Listen, but you got to be careful because we get those emotions stirred, and after a while, you got to go for more than just that because that won't carry you all the way. And see, it's our job to let, to let people know that there's more to it because it's easy to get swept away in the emotion of what's happening right now. That's why you have so many conversions at camp. That's why, like during our mass, you know, our illustrated sermons and dramas and things that we do. That's why you see a lot of people that respond to the altar because they're responding to the emotions of it because they've never seen anything like that, and it connects with them. Listen, Jesus did nothing. Uh, so, so when this man came running up to Jesus and fell on his knees, he was caught up in the emotion of the moment, and Jesus did nothing to exploit that. Did nothing to exploit it. He directed his attention to God. Don't call me good. There's only one. And I think, it, pardon me, for us, it's the same thing. No matter what we're doing for the kingdom, we have to understand all glory goes to God. We used to tell young ministers when they would come in for credentialing, uh, there were three things our, our presbytery used to say that would get you in trouble, and they all start with the letter G. The gold the girls, and the glory. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's good stuff right there. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, all glory goes to God. Secondly, Jesus was motivated by love. 
this comment Mark includes in the story, and his gospel is the shortest of the four, but he has he really brings out an uncommon detail from that the other ones don't include. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Looked at him and loved him. So, so this man comes up to Jesus and asks him, what does he need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus then recited six of the Ten Commandments, you know, and, and, and it's kind of interesting that these commandments had to do, they dealt with how you treat other people. You know, I mean, if you look at what he, he focused on, there were six commandments that had to, do, had to do with how we treat and interact with other people. So this man says, hey, I've done all that since, my, since I was a child. I've done all of that. Matthew's version said the man asked, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Jesus is about to tell him <laughs> what he still lacks, but Mark throws in a parenthetical and says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, we know the end of the story, right? Jesus tells him the man walks away sad because he did not want to part with his money. But Mark wants us to realize, and I think that's why that's in Mark's version of it there, that it wasn't easy for Jesus to say what he said. Jesus was not callous. He didn't delight in saying pointed things that hurt people. Jesus didn't speak to the man in a matter-of-fact way, you know, like take it or leave it kind of manner. He didn't do that. His attitude wasn't follow me or don't follow me. I don't really care. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. John, excuse me, Mark said, Jesus loved the man. He loved him. This love was what prompted him to say what he had to say. See, I think sometimes we, as Christians, we, we, we have to, listen, we have to season everything with love, and we have to be motivated by love. One of the things that modern Christendom has done, particularly over the last couple of years with the, with, with the COVID and uh, and and all of the drama that's unfolded with the elections, and uh, we we got to be careful. Some some Christians today won't. They take delight in uh, telling people, you know, things like turn or burn. You know, they take delight in tearing them down. Uh, you know, I've seen internet preachers that go on a tirade, calling people devils because they have a different belief politically than he does. And it, it grieves me because Jesus didn't do that. This man obviously was lost. This man was seeking eternal life. He wanted to know what to do. Jesus could have eviscerated him right there on the spot if he wanted to, but Jesus loved him. He loved him. Again, Jesus loved this man and knew how difficult it was going to be to hear what he had to say but he needed to hear it. See, that's the difference. See, today, culture would tell us, if you love somebody, don't call them out or don't say what they're doing is wrong. That's not, that's not love. That's not love. To me, that's abuse. If, if, if I know that my children or my grandchildren are going to reach up and, and, and touch a hot pot or a stove or something, I'm going to say something. If they're driving headlong to a cliff and they're going to fall off if something if, if somebody doesn't say something, I'm going to say something. We have a we have a more spiritual pronounced problem. There are people that are headed, they're 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 barreling towards hell. Somebody's got to say something. 
And you can't say, well, you know, God understands. No, we've got to understand. We have to understand. But at the same time, that doesn't give us a license to get up and just berate people and beat them over the head. When we speak the truth, the motive behind our words needs to be love, not vindication. Sometimes the truth of the gospel is a hard pill to swallow, right? Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Nobody wants to be told they're a sinner. It's a hard pill to swallow. The truth that sets you free is the truth that hurts you first. That's it. The truth that sets you free is the truth that hurts you first. I say put on your big boy pants and your big woman pants and just get after it. Get the hurt, get it over with, and go on. Because until you do, you'll never get to the abundant life that Jesus has for you. That truth that Jesus has for us, it's, it, it, it hits us where we live. It forces us to, to confront some things that we sometimes don't want to confront. That confrontation, confrontational truth needs to be spoken in love. I, I, I really believe this. I've got to hurry, though. The church has a cultural responsibility today. Listen, Jesus said we're to be what? Salt and light. Both of those things are noticeable. How many of you, when you taste your food, you automatically know whether it needs salt or not? Why? Because the absence of salt makes a difference. If we turn all the lights out, you know what? It's going to be dark. Light makes a difference. It illuminates. Where's the illumination of the church? We're to be salt, the preservative. Again, I don't have time to go into that, but you understand what I'm talking about. We have, to, we have a responsibility today. And the responsibility is not build our own little kingdoms. Yes, I want to see Bethel grow, and we ought to be excited and, and motivated about church growth and invite people to come. But you know what? That's not the primary mission. I get so, called, so tired of hearing pastors talk about how they want to be the biggest church in town. Well, you can grow your church by, I'm not going to say that. Listen, some, listen sometimes we, we've got to be faithful to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We have to be. We have to stand on his solid teachings and not be apologetic for it. But you can do it with love. You can do it with compassion. Sometimes we proclaim the truth not from a position of love and compassion, but from a position of disapproving self-righteousness. I think sometimes people on the outside look at the church and their message, whether we mean it to be or not, is we're right, we're always right, you're wrong, and you'll always be wrong. And that's the wrong message. Jesus looked at this man, Mark says, and he, and he loved him. He loved him. Well, it's an easy thing. You know, again, I, I think sometimes standing up in today's mindset, today some Christians think standing up for the truth means verbally bashing their opponents or picketing this, or, again, I'm not knocking those. I think, I think those things have places. I don't have any problem with somebody going to an, an abortion clinic and holding up, a, I, I don't have, standing on the street uh, pro-life. I don't have any problem with that. But if that's all you do, I do have a problem with that. You know, what's the old adage? The world knows what we're, uh, what we're against. They just don't know what we're for. They just don't know what we're for. You know, and how many times have you heard somebody joke about there's nothing meaner than a mad, than a mad churchgoer? And, and we laugh about it because we know it's true. 
If you've ever met a mad churchgoer, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, he said, speak the truth in love. Be motivated by love. I want you to notice the commitment that Jesus makes to this man. It was a commitment that I think sometimes is overlooked because Jesus says this. He said, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, come follow me. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, give the money to me, right? He didn't, I'm not going there. He, he, he didn't say, sell everything and give it to my ministry. He said, sell everything, give the money to the poor. Jesus had nothing to gain financially from this wealthy man's conversion. Nothing. In fact, if the man had followed the command that Jesus gave to him, you know what would happen to him? He would have become completely destitute. Wealthy, destitute. If he sold, that's what he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He would have been completely destitute. And you know what? And Jesus would have taken care of him. That's the commitment. He would have joined in that group of, of, of merry men, the people that followed Jesus. He would have lived off the same resources as Jesus and the rest of the disciples. He would have been part of their community 24-7. See, Jesus was ready to commit himself to this man if he would just sell it all and come follow him. I remember when I left the city in 1996 when I had to make the decision either to go full-time ministry because the church had grown and, and needed somebody here or if I was going to stay in my civilian career working or my government job there with the city of Irving. You've heard me say this before, but I remember, I remember when we made the decision to, to go on full-time and, I, and it came down to my last day on the job. And so I, I go to my office and I pack all my belongings into my box and I take my box to the car and I set it in the back seat. And as I'm driving away, I'm seeing City Hall just shrink in my rearview mirror. And on one side, I've got the devil saying, you're an idiot. All you got to do is get up one day and say something people don't like and they'll, they'll chase you out. All you got to do is get up and make a blunder and half of them will walk out on you. Which, by the way, that has happened to, I've, I've known pastors, it, things like that have happened. He kept saying, you're an idiot. But then I had the other voice saying, if you'll follow me, I'll take care of you all the days of your life. That's what Jesus was committing to this man. Give it all and come follow me. When we speak truth to this generation, our words have to be uh, have to be spoken with the same level of commitment. Listen, it's not, just a, it's not enough to just tell everyone what they're doing wrong. We have an obligation to those outside the faith once they respond to the truth to be there to help them through it. How does it apply? Well, think about, think about our, our, the, the people that we serve, our, our circle of influence. You know, there will be times when we have to lay down the law. Uh, okay, and we have to tell them the cold, hard truth, but we also have an obligation to help them walk through the difficult times. It's not enough to say, get organized, <laughs> get your life straightened out, quit making mistakes. It's not enough to say that. Sometimes, listen, anybody can say that, but the level of commitment is, hey, 
I'm here to help you, and I'll walk with you through this path. That's what Jesus was doing. He was making that commitment. And the third thing was this. And i got to hurry. I didn't realize there was so much information. <laughs> the third thing is this. Jesus focused on the main thing. On the main thing. Listen, most people have one thing, one big thing that stands between them and salvation. And I think that is also is true about Christians. I think most Christians have one big thing that stands between them and the abundant life that Jesus came to give them. One big thing. And, and sometimes God will use us to help zero in on somebody's big thing and use somebody to help zero in on our big thing. So when told about keeping the commandments, the wealthy man in verse 20 said, Teacher, all of these things I've done since I was a boy. Hey, I'm, a, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've done it all. I've been there. I kept every one of them from the time I can remember. His statement indicates he probably doesn't really fully grasp what it really means to obey the law. Remember, Jesus said, even if you deviate from one, one, small, one small nugget of it, if you break it, what do you say? You've broken it all. So Jesus doesn't come back and start arguing the fine points of the, of the Levitical code. He doesn't, he doesn't go back and say, wait a minute, you, 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 you're fooling yourself. He doesn't do that. Instead, he, zero in, he zero, zeroes in on what the man needed most to hear, and that was this. Your money is standing between you and God. That's it. That was his big thing. Your money is standing between you and God. And the reason I say it was his big thing is because if you notice, Jesus didn't tell everyone to sell everything and come follow him. When you find him interacting with other people, he doesn't tell them, hey, go sell everything you have, come follow. He doesn't do that. He does it with this man. Why? Because for this man, the most important thing in the world was his money. That was his identity. He was wrapped up in that identity. His money meant more to him than eternal life. In fact, it meant so much that he would rather have riches now than live in heaven for all eternity. That was his one big thing. I wonder today if that same man came to the typical church in America, how would he be received? How would he be received? I think it would be something like, you know what? Welcome, honored guest. Take your choice of seats. How can we serve you today? What would you, we really, man, we've got a vacancy on our elder board. We'd love for you to serve with all your experience. Am I telling the truth? Nine times out of ten, I believe that's exactly what would happen. You know what? And since you're such a good person, you've kept all the commandments since you were young, I, I believe you're ready to start teaching the adult Sunday school class this week. That's, been, that's another one of my pet peeves. You see some famous person get saved, and next week we want them doing an evangelism course or teaching in churches across America. No, they need to sit in a discipleship class and learn the gospel. Again, that's my so I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, too many soapboxes tonight. Listen, this man would have made an excellent church member. But I'm afraid that in many churches he would spend his whole life busy and never deal with that one big thing that keeps him from having a genuine relationship with God. So Jesus understood. He understood this man was respectable. But in the kingdom of God, listen to me, re respectability isn't enough. 
isn't enough. Nothing, nothing short of absolute, unfettered devotion to God will do. That's it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Him. As I close tonight, this story is not a success story for Jesus. Again, think about it. Jesus failed at winning this man or converting this man, at least on this day. And we don't know what happened to him from there out. But at least on this day, Jesus didn't lead him to conversion. If Jesus were a salesman, he would have had to change tactics a little bit and negotiate down a little bit, but it doesn't work that way because entrance, entrance into the kingdom of God can't be negotiated. It is what it is. Nothing but the blood. That's it. Jesus was faithful to the truth, and he did everything he could to help this man find eternal life. The one thing he could not do was make, a, make the man's decision for him. He couldn't do that. Jesus is still bound by that same limitation as we are. Our job is to do all that we can to lead people to Jesus. But at the end of the day, we can't do anything else beyond that. It's their choice. We have an obligation to proclaim the truth. With that proclamation, we have an obligation to do everything we can to help others find their way into the Christian life and, and grow and mature and learn how to deal with the challenges of life. We have to let them know, hey, when you're ready to get serious about God, we're ready to walk along there with you. I love, I love seeing uh, individuals disciple one another. Some of you might remember years ago I had this idea, and I've never developed it. We've talked about it a number of times, but... How many know what a personal trainer is? Okay, so if you're in if you're in in health issue, health things, uh, you know, working out, a personal trainer helps you with the proper techniques, and and it just kind of helps you do things. Well, uh, I had an idea of having uh, spiritual personal trainers, and that is having people having one on one a mature saint disciple someone who's growing in the Lord, who comes alongside of them and coaches them and helps them walk through the basics, the fundamentals of the Christian journey so that they are healthy and strong. Where at some point, you've got to get off the bottle and start cutting up meat, right? And the only way to do that is to be discipled. Listen, we have to proclaim the truth, but then we have to be willing to help them go through and grow. As a believer, we cannot water down what God requires, nor can you and I manipulate someone into deciding their their life. It's their choice. We can only speak the truth, commit to them. That's what Jesus did, and that's what the church ought to do. There are going to be people that we come in contact with that we'll share. They might be interested. They might even have the emotion, but they don't follow through because there's one big thing that keeps them. It might, it, it might be a, an addiction. It might be uh, uh, it, it, it could be any number of things that just keeps them from fully surrender. We all, he had it. Jesus revealed it, but he did not want to do anything. He walked away sad. That's what the Bible said. As I close tonight, what is your one big thing? Again, I, I truly believe that we're, in, in, and maybe you online this, this evening, what's that one big thing that holds you back from tapping in? Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, but I'm come that you might have life and have it in what? In all of its fullness. 
Everything our hearts desire is found in the relationship with God. But what's that one big thing that keeps me from the deeps, the deep things of God? Oh, there are a lot of people that want to wade out in the shallows, and that's okay, and that's comfortable. But what about what God has out in the deep places where faith is all that holds you up? What's the one big thing? I want you to stand with me tonight. I know we're all believers here tonight, so that would be the way I would finish this. And if you're watching it sometime during this week and you're not a believer, I, I just want to challenge you that to right where you are, take a moment and confess Christ as Lord of, your, Lord of your life. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Make that commitment now. Start on that fresh journey. God's got something very, very special for you. Now, for us here tonight and those that are watching online tonight, why don't you bow with me as we close in prayer? Maybe you're here to say, Pastor, you know what? There is one big thing that holds me back. I know it, and, and I struggle with it. Maybe it's been a constant struggle that you've had for, for a long time. Well, you know what? You can still deal with it. You know, a lot of people want to make peace with that one thing, but you can still be free of that one thing. You can still find that abundant life that Jesus has. Nobody looking around online if you'll comment. If you're here tonight, say, Pastor, pray for me. I, there, are, there is one big thing that I, I do struggle with, and I just want God to help me. I just want God to help me. Just look in right and right back down. I'm going to pray for you tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How about it online? If you'll comment, I want to pray with you as well. Father, tonight I love you so much, and I thank you. Lord, what a beautiful story. You love that man, and Lord, you love us. That's what John said in 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved me, Mike Mizell. He loved John. He loved us. He still loves us that he gave his only son. If we would believe in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through you might be saved. Father, tonight we rejoice in that. But, Lord, there's, there's more. There's an abundant life that you purchased for us with your shed blood. Lord, oftentimes we allow one big thing, one major thing to hold us back from tapping into that abundance. And I pray tonight, God, for the hands that went up in here and the ones that are at home tonight and tuned in. Lord, I pray that you would help us to deal with that one thing. Lord, to, to tackle it once and for all and say, you know what? Nothing's going to hold us back. Nothing is going to stop us from achieving what you've called us to achieve and enjoy what you have provided for us to enjoy. Father, I pray that tonight we recognize that, Lord, you're enough and that you love us. Lord, help us in our dealings with other people to be able to speak the truth. If we're going to live a Christ-like life, we need to surrender and be transformed. And we need to show that in how we deal with other people, that we speak things that are motivated because of, out of love, love for that individual, not self-righteousness. So help us to love as you love Help us to see as you saw. Lord, help us to be your hands extended to touch those we come in contact with who are hurting in this day and time in which we live. Now, Father, I pray you'll go with us now. Give us a great day, I pray, uh, Lord, or a great night's sleep. And should you, Terry, bring us on Sunday, Lord, and bring people from the north, the south, the east, and the west that need an encounter with you, even now ordain the miracles that will take place on Sunday. I love and bless each one now in the mighty name of Jesus. We all said. Amen. Thank you for being with us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much.